Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 6, where we'll be revisiting the film on a Majesty's Secret Service. So last week, we had You Only Live Twice, big film, big deal, uh, especially because it's the last time we're going to see Sean Connery as Bond. We're, you know, he did his last film, Wait. he finished his contract, and now uh, it's the George Lazenby and Roger Moore era. So, um... Excuse me. Um, huh? Actually, <laughs> actually, we got one no, more goodie new coming bond. up. It's a new Bond, right? How many right. films does this one do? Like five, six? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He loved it. He loved it. In fact, he was too old by the end. He was way too old for the role. Yeah, he sucked in a few to a kill. He really lost it by that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is a a very different film of course it's uh well it's not even just the george lazenby thing which we're almost certainly going to get into it's also the fact that it's like a different director uh peter h hunt right i think peter h hunt hunt was it hunt i think uh, yeah no it can't be h hunt, hunt. What are we talking about? peter r hunt sorry yeah yeah peter hunt who i got mixed up with someone else because i think there's isn't there another peter hunt that was like the set designer or something Anyway, uh, potentially, I, I, I mean, the credit sequences are so. I, I'm not looking at the names, <laughs> but yeah, I think he was second director for some of the previous films, um, and they basically said like that we'll give you one to do eventually, and then someone dropped out of directing this one, so they said, fine, go on in, have this one. Yeah, which was very nice of them, but then he never came back. They were like, yeah, I got mine, thank you, good luck on the rest of it. <laughs> this film is cursed. One time. One-time appearances. Yeah, apparently. I don't know. But I was quite looking forward to looking to this one because, uh, as you know, I ranked this one as number five in my pre-rankings in the in the top films. Although I was a little bit unsure about that or this film in From Russia With Love. But I gave it to this film due to just how unique and different it was. And even though I couldn't remember a ton of details about this film rewatching again, that's the thing that really stood out to me. And it's quite nice to know that I was right, because watching this film, wow, is it unique and different for a James Bond film. Yeah, yeah, unique is a good word. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> unique, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're thinking of that in different ways, though. Let's just say that. I had no, no real opinion of this film beforehand as you say it's the one with george lazenby it's the one with the one bond actor um the one with the weird blofeld actually they're all weird in their own way but Mm. um or the different blofeld i suppose but uh i the one thing i didn't know about this film is that back in 1969 when it came out i think the reviews were mixed and i think ever since then and especially more recently sort of contemporary reviews it's like shot up in people's rankings this film like suddenly has taken on its own little uh, like world of its own in terms of popularity. Yeah, you definitely see that. I remember the first time hearing that, uh, and I was I was reading the same kind of Wikipedia article you probably was before this. No, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember reading this back in the day about how Christopher Nolan says this is his favorite Bond film, and I remember yeah. reading that back when Inception was coming out because he was specifically talking about the connections between this film and Inception and saying, yeah, this, that's my favourite Bond film. And that was the first time I had really heard that and heard that this film had kind of this own, you know, reputation and was very much 
maybe this is an overused term, but cult classic uh, among mm. Bond fans. But yeah, I remember hearing that. I was like, okay, cool. But I didn't actually really get to watching it again until I was, you know, years ago, rewatching all the Bond films. And I remember liking it at the time, although it was sandwiched between like You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever. So that kind of probably doesn't help the film in terms of being memorable uh, in that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely one that's probably seen as being overlooked and I think now is maybe I would say it's gone too far the other way but I guess that's what <laughs> we're going to be discussing <laughs> yeah. no more to... of this this ends today it will because we are we will be discussing and I do have some thoughts and they're not nice ones I'm sorry sorry what? George oh no well if you've got three hours spare let's maybe get into it <laughs> maybe even four let's find out <laughs> it's a long film it's a long bond oh yeah <laughs> Okay, well, let's get into the film then. Let's not waste any time. So uh, straight away, we have the Bond intro, the circles coming across. But there's like a couple of tweaks to it that I didn't really understand the purpose. Uh, So the first one is that the circles come across and instead of it going straight to Bond coming out, like, you know, usually they go left to right and then Bond comes out from the right. But this time they like stop and they show the producer's name in the circles instead. Uh, really? I don't... Yeah. Did you not notice that? <laughs> no, I you you focus a lot on the dots, which is the right thing to do because this is a Bond podcast. I think at that point <laughs> I'm just like still settling in, getting my drink ready, and oh, they're gone. <laughs> it's yeah. like missed them. Never mind. You hear the gunshot? Yeah. Like oh, I'm paying attention. I'm here. Oh, yep. oh, right. Yeah, yep, the yep, podcast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it might have been an opportunity that they saw. It's like right, okay, Sean's gone, guys. We as the big wig producers can get our names in there now, and no one's going to say anything because it's George Lazenby. So it's like, it's just odd that they changed it because they were still very much trying to mimic that, recreate that and make it feel like Bond. It's just, no, let's get our names in there to begin with. Ah, so was it, I mean, I guess it wasn't that distracting, but it's just odd. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Like, it's totally fine. It's just like, I think they just saw that opportunity to, like, they were allowed to change it. So they did change it. And it's kind of like, well... You didn't really need to do that, could you? If you want to have people be like, okay, this is still the same James Bond I know, just keep it the same. Like, you don't don't mess with it. That's going to be a recurring thing that we're, we'll be talking about, I think, is is that that idea of them wanting to tell, tell the audience that, hey, this is the same character. Um, lots of examples of that coming up. Mm-hmm. And also, I think the other change, and I don't know if this is actually... I can't quite remember, but this film features like a different version of the Bond song where I don't know what the instrument is, but I'm pretty sure there's like a different instrument that's been introduced that plays part of the melody. And I want to say it plays during this opening bit as well. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I What I did notice, I was I was watching, I promise. I was... I was uh, looking at the walk, obviously, like the you know the Bond walking across, and for all of my uh, misgivings of George Lazenby, he does have a good stride and a good kneel and shoot for the gun barrel. I think he does a good job with that. I, I've got to disagree. Oh, I don't want to no. get controversial and combative straight away, but I thought he looked quite awkward, um, and I don't know if it's just due to how tall he is. And that build of his, that that it doesn't really kind of match up. But, you know, Bond walking across the screen, you want a certain level of confidence there and, and things like that. But I didn't quite 
get that from him. Again, not really a big deal, but it, he he felt a little clumsy to me coming out and doing the shot. Wait, clumsier than Sean Connery wobbling on his knee? That's the uh, thing I was comparing to. That's all part of his to. charm, isn't it? That's all part of it, right? <laughs> you love him for it, yeah. Little shaky Sean. <laughs> oh, it's Bond, his back. Shaky, sweaty Sean. <laughs> yeah, I don't want gingerly walk George. It's not for me. <laughs> all right, no bullying now. Come on. <laughs> He's still alive, all right? <laughs> Yeah, it's true, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's still going. Uh, so we go from that and we fade or we cut to London and we cut to M's office and we get a really nice little moment here. Not much gets really said plot-wise or anything too important, but it's M and Q just kind of having a chat in the office. And I couldn't tell you what Q's saying to him. I think he has like a magnifying glass, but... It was actually really nice to see M and Q interacting without Bond being there. That is true. That is true. Although I just, I'm kind of with you. I have no, no idea what Q is talking about in this scene. I, I had to replay it a couple of times because he's talking about lint or some sort of <laughs> dust. Yeah. And I just, I was like, hang on, is this going to be related to the plot later on? I don't, I don't remember radioactive dust in the plot, but. Yeah, it's very strange. You're right in that regard of seeing seeing life at MI6 when Bond's not there. But uh, it was just very, very strange intro to the film. I was like, what? Am I missing something? No, we're talking about dust. All right. I think they're just trying to reinforce that Q is probably the most boring man in the world. Ah, <laughs> uh, probably. Yeah, but M's just too polite to be like, just Q, just go away. Like, just <laughs> go back to Q branch. Go back to the basement. We put you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's. I feel like Q and M probably have a nice relationship outside of uh, MI6. They go for a pint. You know, one of those old glasses with the little dimples on it and go talk about state secrets over some uh, a bag of pork scratchings. That sounds lovely. Doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but alongside them, we also have Money Penny in her office. And basically, after Q gets done talking about dust... They're all saying, like, where's 007? Where's James Bond gone? We we don't know. Moneypenny's like, I don't know where she is. Uh, but then we cut to, to somewhere tropical. So I think this was quite a smart move on their behalf, where these characters are, you know, a pretty big part of the franchise. And rather than just straight away showing George Lazenby and stuff, they instead go to, you know, it's M, it's Q, it's Moneypenny. They're all paid by the same actors and they're all in the same locations you know and love and they're talking about James Bond. And yeah, I think it was smart. It's a very small detail, but I think a, a good one to start things off. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's true, a little buffer, a little familiarity buffer before we get straight on to George. So talking about getting straight on to George, so we go to somewhere tropical with palm trees and beaches and things like that. And we get the Bond theme play again, which is, you know, it's just another example of like, hey, they're really reinforcing the idea of, hey, this is still a Bond film. This is still the one. They use it a lot, the Bond theme in this one. A lot. Yeah, like outside of Doctor No, this is probably the second most use. Mm. If only there was more airport scenes. I think we would have heard (laughs) it a few more times. We get hotel scenes, which is probably the second most. So it's all right. They should have started on a hotel. If they wanted to make us feel familiar, like, oh, this is a Bond theme, he should have started in the hotel. Yeah, pick up the phone, get followed by some sneaky-looking person. Oh, it's a Bond film. Gotcha. Ah, yeah, I've seen this one. Yeah, I know what I'm in for. (laughs) 
yeah, so the Bond theme is playing and we have some guy in a car driving along. They don't explicitly say it's Bond, but the fact that everyone was talking about Bond and the Bond theme is playing, you're like, yeah, okay, that's that's Bond. Uh, and he's driving along. He takes a cigarette, lights it up. You get a nice zoom in on the mouth. Yeah. Did you did it, did it make you think of the Family Guy smoke? Are you smoking yet? It's just like so many close ups of the cigarettes. Like, Look at this smoking, so cool, kids. You should do it. It's just like so obvious in the camera. I I don't remember that episode. I'm afraid. Oh, never mind. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right, though, when you're saying about the cool thing, that this is, they're trying to show off Bond as being cool without actually showing his face. Yeah. Like, it's a little bit of, it's a cool car, it's in a tropical setting, he's smoking, and I don't know if you can see how he's dressed, but I think you do get a little bit, like, he's well-dressed, it's like, yeah, this is this is Bond doing his thing. Yeah, it's definitely something that is, I'm now trying to think about all the, the Bond actors, I think they're all sort of done in this way where it's a little bit mysterious at the beginning. You don't quite see the full face at first or it's just a glimpse. I don't know. I'm not sure about Roger Moore, come to think of it, but I know the others are definitely like that. Um, so, and given this was the first example of that, of a change in actor, it, I guess it makes sense to do this kind of big build up to it. Um, I think maybe it was a little bit much, <laughs> Like, at some point, I'm just like, yeah, all right, just just get on with it. But yeah, it was it was fine. Yeah. So here's what I find kind of odd about this. So we'll skip ahead a little bit here, where he's basically driving along. He gets overtaken by a woman in a red car, and basically follows her because it's the James Bond you know and love. <laughs> if he sees a woman in a car, he's gonna find her. He's gonna get her. Oh yeah. Um, and then basically looks at her through the scope. But quite shortly after this is when they show off Bond and they show off George Lazenby as Bond. But the actual shot where they first show him is just like this, is when he gets out of the car and it's just like this underneath shot looking upwards. But you can clearly see his face, but it's not like, you know, the Sean Connery reveal where he's sitting on the table smoking in the tux and things like that. And then you get a full shot of him saying, I'm Bond, James Bond. Instead, the first look you actually get is like this very rushed shot and i'm not quite sure why they put that in there and why they didn't make it a little bit more of a moment when you actually get to see the the full look of george lazenby as bond yeah especially when that first full look is like such that's meant to be the shot because it's the bond james bond line so i mean i didn't particularly that's that shot didn't stand out to me the one you're referring to but i can see how yeah like in retrospect that was a bit of a strange decision yeah, it didn't stand out that much to me either, but I saw it and I was like, yeah, that's just George Lazenby, like completely, like you put in all this effort to make sure he was hidden so you could have a reveal, but then they just didn't do that. It's it's a bit odd. Mm. So Bond is basically, you know, looking at this woman who's now walking into the ocean. He's watching them through a scope, uh, which is like a sniper scope, I think it's supposed to be. Like he's got a, I think it's the, the rifle from Ron from Russia with Love, I want to say, the one that he assembles in that film. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, with all the callbacks, yeah. Yeah, like, I think, I don't know for sure, but you definitely see the gun, and you see how he's pulled the scope off it, and it's definitely that one that looks, like, a bit disassembled. So he's looking uh, through the scope at this woman, and she walks into the ocean, and which is when Bond gets out of the car, you get a look at him stepping out of the car, and then he... He runs into the ocean, and all you see is the back of his head, and... 
And maybe this is why I think he was a bit awkward and off in the circles, because this is a very bad way to introduce a new Bond, having him run, like, in a straight line at the ocean. He, like, <laughs> this was just mean. Like, he did not look very sophisticated and cool uh, running like this. I I know what you mean, because I did spot it too. And I was, I did think as I was watching, is it unfair to criticise his run? But then, then I remember, like, Sean Connery was chosen because of his walk or, or, you know, that helped. Like, he had a really good walk. Well, so the story goes anyway. So you'd think if that was the case, they would have maybe given him some more direction about how to run. <laughs> I like guess it is Bond, right? So it's got to look good. Well, I don't think it's really fair on George Lazenby at all because running across a beach is like most people are probably going to look a bit awkward right that's not an easy thing to do uneven ground where your foot sinks like it's it's just kind of like a bad setup uh to have someone run across this straight away now i'm picturing if he fell over <laughs> he just tripped yeah <laughs> but it's like although again to to be against george Lazerby here he does like flap his arms quite yeah. weirdly i know this is such a weird thing to kind of focus on and talk about but you know this is the first impression of George Lazenby as Bond and they kind of mess it up and kind of don't really do a very good job with this opening scene and it kind of it it's all in the details where George uh, Sean Connery's introduction is all in the details it's all very subtly built up and it's quite a, a simple scene but a very effective one and it's really smartly built up and he gets to sit there all confident like but not George Lazenby they approach it differently but I think they wanted it to have a similar impact and it just kind of doesn't I think it's just too long like the longer it is the more chance you have of these little kind of weird moments or moments where like oh you can clearly see who it is and just i think short but sweet is the best way to do that because if it's if it's too long then you notice how long it's been and you think right this has got to be good and and it's and then you see stuff like that and you think oh all right so yeah i like the idea of what they were doing but i just think it was as you say not very well implemented no i think all you need to do because i think the car stuff is fine yeah all you the need car to is do great. Yeah, the car stuff's good. All you need to do is have him step out of the car and have that be it. And then just yeah. go, blow or whatever. And there you go. You're done. Yep. You get the Freddy shirt out. You, you're like, that's James Bond. I know the guy. Love that Freddy shirt. <laughs> so here's something that I didn't pick up on. So basically, the reason why Bond is running towards this woman is because she's like walking into the ocean. But apparently she was meant to be killing herself. Mm, Yeah. I didn't pick up on that when oh, watching really? it. Okay, interesting. I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious looking back on it, but I thought like she was just having a swim and it just went a bit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes and grabs her. <laughs> yeah, it's Bond, right? That's what he does. Uh, so I thought he was that he was running in to help her. And I think she did needed help, but I didn't quite get that she was depressed and trying to kill herself. Maybe it's just because of the way the exchange goes afterwards. But I don't really get that sense of somebody who's like suicidal for the rest of the film. So when when did you pick up on that? When I read it on Wikipedia. After oh, I it. <laughs> okay. So at no point in the film. Oh, I see. All right. Okay. Yeah, I just missed that detail. Just missed it. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, he he runs in, grabs her. She's obviously not happy about this. She wants to she wants to go walk in the sea, um, but eventually gets her back onto the shore, which is then when you get the whole what I think is meant to be like the proper shot 
of George Lazenby um, with the with the Bond line, and then as soon as that happens, bam, gets attacked straight away, wasting no time. Oh no! Um, I can't remember how many. I think it's like two or three men, henchmen, goons, uh, and so the, uh, the lady who we don't know who this is yet, she she runs off, um, and he you know, really quickly gets into this fight, and. What I'm a little bit disappointed by with this film, and it starts kind of from the get-go, is the fighting has kind of gone back to that style from Thunderball, which I didn't like, which is very hard cuts and not, you know, jump cuts and not matching up. This one isn't the worst in the film by any means. It, It gets worse later on to me. But yeah, it's like straight away we're getting into this really choppy style, which... I think obviously the editor liked doing, but is not for me. Um, and a lot of flips. Did you notice there was just a lot? I of definitely, <laughs> yeah, I noticed the flips. So many like, flips. Like, yeah, I know it's something that has happened in other Bond films, but I think this one, I didn't count them. Maybe I should have done. But yeah, there's lots of just like quick flips. Someone just gets flipped in the air and falls down like all the time. Yeah. Because yeah, he's fighting one guy in the ocean. Well, I think the other guy might be going for the woman or going for Bond. And then Bond drowns that dude. Uh, and then basically has another fight. But something that I will also say about the fist fight, uh, I completely agree what you're saying about the editing. Uh, it is back to Fundable. Uh, in some ways, I would say they're better than Fundable because I feel like I still got a good sense of the fight. It just felt like incomplete, where Fundable, I would just get completely lost. It's like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like, why? Like, everyone would just flip positions in between ones, where this one, I think, were better put together as to make it cohesive. It was just like, well, you just took out a load of stuff you didn't need to take out just for the sense of speed and how it doesn't work. But the the music, I can't remember what the music was for this one, but it was kind of bad and oh i can't remember either yeah and maybe i'm showing my hand a bit too early here but something that's very odd and i had to look at look this up i was like is this still john barry because this might be the worst score we've had for the whole series outside of the main themes you know the focal themes and stuff any music outside of that we've got like a new version of the bond theme that just is just unnecessary and everything else the music was just really kind of limp and i didn't really like it and it just didn't really have that same bombastic big sound that john barry would always bring to these films and overall i would say it was quite disappointing i would probably agree with that but only because like Looking through my notes, uh, in most of the previous films we've watched so far, I have usually pointed out or wrote down if I enjoyed the music, and I did not write anything about the music for this one. (laughs) Yeah, that's not right. Like not when it's been so good when John Barry's on board. And again, I'm surprised it was John Barry. I was expecting to look it up and find like somebody else did it as a placeholder, you know, just a shoe in, just because it was different. But no, it was still him. Just didn't have the same feel as a normal John Barry soundtrack. Yeah, not good. But we're getting to a, a uh, controversial point in Bond history now, and I'd be keen to hear your opinion on it. So after he's dealt with these goons um, from from nowhere, uh, the woman has run up. She's she's gone back to her car and driven off. And this is where you get the infamous breaking of the fourth wall with George Lazenby looking at the camera and saying, this never happened to the other fella. So... 
I wanted to know what you what you thought about that. So I like that they're drawing it out I, I, or pointing it out a little bit and having a little bit of fun with it. I like the line, I don't like the camera look. There was just <laughs> no need for him to... And, and the, it's the way it plays out as well. He says it and then looks at the camera. Like, he, he didn't even look at the camera and say it. He just, like, was talking to himself, as Bond does, and then just looked at the camera like, eh? uh, <laughs> Thank you, folks. So if they just had the line, I would have quite liked it. And again, I think that's quite fun. And in, in line with Bond pointing the finger itself and a bit of humour, uh, it, it worked for me. But yeah, don't look at the camera. Never don't look that. at the camera. I, so I knew this was coming, obviously. Uh, and I did, yeah, I was, I was curious. I, I too don't mind the line. I think some people will be completely against the idea of breaking the fourth wall. And I, I don't really care, but so I I just seen it. I was like, okay, yeah, huh, whatever. Um, but it was only after like watching the rest of the film now and realizing how much they, as I said, how much they push the idea that this is the same character. And oh, do you remember this from the previous films? Uh, uh, that's all that sort of stuff. I think why why bother with that? Like if you're if you're so clearly trying to mesh together this series despite a new actor. Why then clearly point it out? It just doesn't make sense to me. So the actual line, it's fine. But I think in the grand scheme of the film, I think it's just um, mixed messages. You're giving me mixed messages, film. Calm down. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think maybe it would have been better to just kind of avoid that issue and kind of leave it. But I don't know. I kind of appreciate that straight away. They're going to at least kind of reference it, even if it's maybe not done in the right way. And I think doing it in the opening sequence before the credits, it's, it was probably the smart way to do it, right? Like, if there was any time in the film you were going to point it out, that is kind of when you would do it. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of and done with quick. Yeah, definitely. So then we transitioned to the credits and there was no fancy transition or anything that I noticed. Like, they've put a real effort in the last few films to kind of have them tie together. You know, the the main one I think of is obviously the Fundable one, where the Aston Martin spits all that water steam out, and then it goes into the Fundable one. So they were clearly making an effort there, but this one didn't do that. And I think that kind of ties in with the rest of the credits, where, like, I don't think the credit sequence was bad, but this is, like, one of the most basic ones we've had so far like it it doesn't it's just colors and a few silhouettes and some footage and it seems interesting that they were clearly building these up and making them more complicated but for this film we have something that's only a little bit more complicated than dr no was yeah i i wasn't a big fan when it first started and you got sort of the is, the, is it the clock at the beginning and and the sort of uh, britannia statue I was like, oh, right, I remember some of the sort of iconography from this now. This is going to be good. And then I completely forgot that it has that hourglass and, yeah, that the slideshow and clips from previous films. And then that just completely wrecked it for me. I I really did not like that. Again, it's that thing of like, look, it's the same It's the same character. Look, at these are all the people that he faced. Do you remember Pussy Galore and Goldfinger and all that? And I guess that wouldn't have been terrible. But I think just having it as this slideshow manner just looked really kind of amateur i don't know it's like such a lazy way of doing it to me 
well yeah you could have been smarter with it right and it's kind of what you said with the other thing before where like it they'd focus on it for ages like yeah it's not just a few quick clips like about half of it maybe even more of this sequence is these clips of the older films and it's like yeah i remember that yep i do yep <laughs> dr no that's the guy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I remember this like <laughs> it's fine uh but if they just showed a few clips or maybe some from yeah just a few clips would have been fine to tie it together but they instead kind of strip this sequence of a lot of its identity for the sake of reminding you that they made five films before this yeah if i was to sum up if i was to sum up this uh title sequence with two words it would be clips and nips (laughs) so many nipples my goodness Oh, so you weren't paying attention to the circles and the producer credits, but you get some nips and wit nips on there. Joe's <laughs> straight away writing that down. You could have not missed them. So many nipples. So clips and nips. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also, like, the colours are not bad, but it's, like, it's blue for ages, and then it's green for ages, and then it's black for ages, and that's your lot. So even visually outside of the clips, I just don't think they really just attempt to do anything which is just so bizarre Uh, and maybe that has something to do with the budget because this one has a lower budget than the other ones so maybe that tied into it but yeah odd odd how basic this is so i wanted to ask you uh what did you think of this song what what do you think of the the main theme of uh, this film uh i think i i like it i really like it I think um, like, if you think of the actual reasons for why this was the case, where it was a, an instrumental, again, it's that same Wikipedia. I mean, uh, no, something else. But yeah, um, <laughs> on Wikipedia, it says like, how on earth could you get on Her Majesty's Secret Service into a lyric for a song? And that makes total sense, right? Just don't even don't even try. Um, so I think this being the next best thing is really good. I mean, it's it's a great, it's a great secondary Bond track. Like if you don't want to use the Bond theme, you can use this and it, it works just as well yeah I, I really like the song and like you kind of say like in terms of instrumentals for bond i don't always associate this song with this film no. i just associate it as a great bond track that is quite yeah. versatile and you can really tie to the series the problem for me is that i would say this is an amazing track it just doesn't work as a title theme it, it just doesn't fits it didn't really do anything for the visuals i don't think it really it just doesn't work there's just not enough uh like punch behind it is what i ended up writing down there's no real it doesn't need to be big it can be slower and those themes kind of work but it's just kind of sits somewhere in the middle where it doesn't quite have the weight of a thunderball or a goldfinger but then it's not quite as energetic as the from russia with love or um dr no and it doesn't have that like romantic angle that you only live twice does so again amazing track i just think it's kind of misused having it over these opening credits to kind of get you excited and into this bond theme it just doesn't serve that purpose for me so do you think using it as you know for a for an action scene is is where it's best well we'll get there okay i I think it works well as part of a film score and again it's a fantastic piece it's just maybe doesn't quite I feel like they thought it had a lot higher impact and a lot more excitement behind it with the way they've used it than it does. Right. Sure. So after the credits, we cut to Bond properly in full view. He's uh, 
as we say, we have to have the hotel scene. So we mm-hmm. have the hotel scene. Um, one thing I wrote down first, like, as I say, first proper look at Bond now after the opening title sequence or pre-title sequence is I put down the, the suit he's wearing. <laughs> it's like it's like a cream colored suit. And it just stood out to me because I, I just would have assumed they would have Bond in like the classic black tux or something like that. But no, it is in the cream suit. Bit different. Well, they had him in not the tux tux, but in a more black suit in the the intro, didn't they? Yeah, but he took off his jacket very very early, so it's just him in like the frilly white shirt. So I thought they'd have him <laughs> in the full, you know, the full tux. But no, anyway, um, he's uh, he's in a hotel. Um, I don't know if it's ever explained why he's there. Because he follows the woman there because she's parked up there, so he follows her to that hotel. Wow, I did not even connect. See, I did not connect that bit together. <laughs> I didn't get the suicide attempt, but I got the <laughs> why Bond was there. Right, right. Um, so yeah, he. I think he just. just did you? All I wrote down for this bit is that he goes pretty much straight to the casino. Um, I don't think anything interesting. And anything interesting happens before then. No, Am he right? goes straight to. He checks in in this whitish kind of suit. And then they fade tonight, and he's in a tux in the casino. Oh, that's right! It does that weird reflection in the in the swim swim pool about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and look, he's in this casino, which I have to say is probably one of the ugliest casinos we've seen <laughs> so far in the Bond series. It is so bad looking. Like, I didn't even notice, but oh, yeah, I guess not. Not enough smoke, I suppose. Right? Not <laughs> to enough hide smoke. It. Too much like garish purple and blue on the walls oh my god it's just did not seem very classy but um yeah straight to again i i had to look up the card game that is just constantly in these early bond films the baccarat or fleming de Fleur or chemin de fleur i don't know what it's called whatever Flip that one two is, cards it? win a prize yeah something about the the bonk right <laughs> um straight onto the, the table name's playing bonk <laughs> james bonk <laughs> It's definitely not the right word, but you know what I mean. Uh, straight on to that. The shoe. I think it's called the shoe, isn't it, that thing? Um, Joe, you keep digging. I'm just oh, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a casino man. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, he's on there and he's, and he's playing playing that game. And suddenly, from behind a lampshade, it's the lady. The lady from the beach. She's there looking lovely and all doled up. And uh, she takes part in the card game. And very quickly loses. He bets a lot of money, <laughs> instantly loses, and is about to say to the croupier, like, I haven't got any money. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so Bond steps in and sort of covers for her. And, I mean, we're going to be talking about that character a lot, which is obviously Tracy in the end. Um, but I think as far as Bond girls go, like, great, great start. I, I really like this character and I think this first introduction of her and it's, just, it's exactly the same as from the book because again this is one of the few books I have read um, yeah she she just likes to to mess around and <laughs> get into trouble and doesn't really care and you just see it straight away and I thought that was quite good yeah it was definitely nice considering how this film plays out to get her up front and she does disappear for our big chunk of the films, but mm. straight away, like you see Tracy before you see Bond properly. Yeah. And that was definitely the smart way to go about it. And and as you say, you get a little bit of personality. I feel like 
Diana Rigg, is that her name, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like her presence on screen is so striking, like, as a as an actress. Like, she really stands out, even, like, you know, she hasn't got mu- much to do here, but she does really kind of sell that character and just... It's one of those where sometimes with Bond girls, like, if they don't really... If they're not given much, they do just kind of disappear in the background. But this is somewhere where I would say she's not given a ton of stuff in some of these scenes in terms of dialogue and character development. Like that is there, yes, but not always. But even on those scenes, she just pops. Like she's just very eye-catching and probably like the best cast Bond film, uh, Bond girl, sorry, maybe ever in all the films. I 100% agree. I think, I I, I mean, I'm going to get onto this later on, but she, to me... It's probably like acting wise the best in this film and by far kind of upstages George Lazenby in all of the scenes they're in together in terms of acting credibility. And, and yeah, I, she's really good. And as you say, I think any other actress might not have been able to do that well with this character, um, but she really kind of makes her mark really quickly. And yeah, definitely like the most captivating bond girl we've seen so far straight from the get-go yeah i wouldn't necessarily say she's my favorite but again in terms of acting chops and being iconic and just being so good on screen i i can't think of anyone that comes close sorry hallie berry sorry you'll get that jinx spin off one day <laughs> she'll get hurt <laughs> um but i do also quickly while we're here now that we've seen bond because we've seen bond in like three different outfits you know the black suit and straight away he's in this white kind of as you would say kind of cream suit i saw it more as being a little bit more gray it's definitely a very odd color but um, okay and we see him in the tux as well so straight away they're trying to reinforce him as being a, a good dresser and having all this fancy stuff and that's something that kind of recurs throughout the film i would say george lazenby as bond is a lot more focused on being well dressed really uh, how well dressed he is kind of depends on personal taste but goldfinger i think started off with sean connery in like shorts and an open shirt by the pool yeah there's um, little there's little tiny blue shorts yeah yeah and that wasn't the only time he wore those shorts um, <laughs> he loved those things yeah but in this film he is very smartly very like proper fancy clothes all the time but something that stood out to me about him and it started in this scene and it's kind of recurring throughout the film so i I probably won't bring it up again but he's very thin and i don't know if that's because sean isn't thin sorry sean um (laughs) but he 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 really stood out to me as being a very tall slender man and i think that comes from his modeling you know the fact that he was a model he wasn't a an actor and it was quite distracting to see someone who's meant to be james bond who's meant to get physical and things like that be as skinny as he is again it's not really fair on on george laserby to you know not trying to body shame anywhere but it was just like it's so weird seeing bond as a very tall slender man i just don't picture bond that way hmm yeah i that didn't bother me too much but that's usually because i was distracted by his acting rather than how he looked as you say this he was a model i think this was his first film since like yeah having done modeling uh and to me and I, actually yeah i'll say it now because otherwise i'll just keep harping on about it but i just don't i don't think he's a very good actor and i'm you could be like well it's his first film like give him a break but then like no <laughs> no it's, it's a bond film like they should have picked someone that was a good actor and i think they they 
they didn't. They made a mistake. But most of the times he's, he's in this film, uh, I just can't, I just don't like it. I just don't like it when he's when he's trying to do like the romantic stuff. With Actually, the stuff with, with Tracy ends up being the better parts, but everything else in this casino, talking to um, M, I just, it's all, I just don't like it. I'm sorry, George. You're bad. Oh, you went straight <laughs> to the B word, straight to bad. Bad George Bond. Bad. bad Bond. Yeah, that's my main takeaway from this so far. Okay, well, I think we'll discuss it a little bit more. We'll we'll move things along because I I don't fully agree, but there's plenty of opportunities to talk a little Lazenby uh, in this film. So uh, after that, uh, basically Tracy walks away from the table and Bond follows her, uh, and then they sit down and, and start having a chat. And I think basically not very much happens with this chat. It's just I think they instantly already know each other's names. Like they just sit down. It's like ah, James Bond. Ah, Tracy. I I, mm-hmm. I I don't know why that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. This she, this scene is so short. It's just like yeah, goes doesn't it? Yeah. So Tracy's all like, haha, here's my key. And Bond's like, ah, excellent. Um, and then we we quite quickly cut to Bond entering the hotel room for Tracy, where oh no, there's a man in there, and he attacks Bond. And, oh no <laughs> and we get a very similar scene to the one at the beach yeah where it's just bond in a hotel room and it's a lot of uh throwing people a lot of throwing stuff and kind of hits and it's like it's one of those where they do it's very fast but it's all the impact right so instead of bond kind of like going backwards swinging forward and punching and then going back instead you just get forward punch you just get like the impact and it ends up like these scenes just end up being like impact after impact after impact after impact oh the henchman's down and that's your lot yeah that is that is the issue with it you're right there's no follow-through yeah so you don't really get that kind of satisfaction and also something that i noticed here which i don't think was in the beach scene but we do get in later ones the dubbing of the noises for the fighting are very off and very peculiar. You just right. get like, you know, normally you just get those fights. So it's like, oh, 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 oh. Like, <clears throat> you get noises like that. Yeah. But like, actually, what I just did, not not like <laughs> I'm doing a bad job imitating it. No, like actually, those type of noises. Yes. Like it's yes. extremely amateur for some reason. I put down lots of grunting, lots of grunting, um, and and kind of linked to that. I put weak sound effects now this may have been something with the previous bond films could well have been like they're just using the same sound effects but i didn't really notice it as much back then with this film and other parts of this film the the, the sort of like the punch sound was so bad it was like cartoony bad i may have just been sort of overly fixating on it and it's actually not a big deal but that was my main takeaway from this this little fight scene is yeah lots of grunting bad sound effects and again like sloppy cutting editing so not good yeah, again, unfortunately, just not good. I mean, I don't think it really affects the film too much for me. It was just very odd because they they didn't have these problems with the other ones. Like you say, I didn't notice any problems with the sound edit. Well, there were problems with the sound editing, but with the fight scenes, you know, they can they stripped out the music and just had two people fighting, and it kind of worked and was fine and wasn't. Uh, yeah, it worked. So this again just sounds so amateur. Like someone just randomly added a load of just like 
they were like, oh, I, I need to edit this scene. I need it done by tomorrow morning. All right, I'll get a mic. <laughs> get off. And then I'll just edit, put it there, there, there. There we go. Done. Peter won't notice. And then he didn't. No, he <laughs> didn't. It was Cash's check and he left. Um, he was already out the door with George Lazenby. <laughs> arm in arm. Actually, I think they hated each other by all accounts. But anyway, uh, one other thing about this fight, because it's again, it's a recurring thing. So I'm going to say it now so I don't have to keep saying it is Lazenby, well, it's, it's twofold. One, bad writing, and two, Lazenby can't deliver them. But so many like end-of-fight, end-of-scene quips in this, and they're all bad. I don't think there was one good, shocking, positively shocking type line. I did not count one. Uh, I mean, I, they made sense, so they got, they got half that going for them. Half a point. <laughs> half a point for making sense. But yeah, again, I appreciate that they were in there. But yeah, you're right. He, George Lazenby cannot deliver those lines in that cocky way that Sean Connery did. No, doesn't have just doesn't have the chops for it. So then this scene ends, and I have to mention it, where the man gets knocked down. But for some reason, like a bloody Tom and Jerry cartoon, he doesn't just collapse. He goes to the ground... He leans back up, rolls his eyes, and then falls down again. <laughs> yeah, you half expected the birds flying around his head. <laughs> yeah, cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, strange choice. But you don't get anything like that ever again in the film. This no. is the only time that happens. Is it bad that I'm, don't, I'm not even sure who that character was? It was just the henchman of uh, Draco. Right, okay, that does make sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because he does come back, he's in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after that, he goes back to the hotel room. We get a nice few, a nice view of his Freddy shirt, and I think with I need to talk about the Freddy shirt for a second, okay? Because this goes back to did they want to separate George Lazenby out as a very separate Bond doing his own thing, or did they want to tie it more as a just a straight up replacement for Sean Connery? Exactly. Because the Freddy shirt is so like it. It just. You can't see anything else when it's on screen. And it's so different to anything else that Sean Connery wore that I don't... It, it kind of like makes me think, okay, they do want to do something different with this Bond. But no, that's not really true. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's maybe it was like George's favourite shirt from his modelling days. <laughs> it's like, yeah. in my contract, I have to wear this shirt. I already got the shirt, guys, so... <laughs> Save me some money. There. So I don't mind them changing the dress sense a bit. You know, again, I like a lot of the the outfits that he wears throughout the film. Just for some reason, they specifically took that iconic Bond look and that iconic Bond tuxedo and kept it mostly the same. They just gave him a very distinct Freddy shirt. And it's like, again, if you were going for a very different type of Bond, I can kind of get down with the Freddy shirt. But I don't think that's what they wanted. Yeah, well, it's like when they change Bond actors later on and they, they change from cigarettes to cigars and martinis to whiskey or whatever like that it's clear then they're they're trying to make the new actor their own bond whereas here you're right it's sort of a strange middle ground and it's getting a little bit of both and not working for either so uh so then bond's in the hotel room and it turns out tracy is in there not wearing too much again a classic bond setup but because bond has been attacked he's very suspicious of her and basically accuses her of, like, why was there a man in, in the room? And grabs her arm, gives her a little shake, gives her yep. the slap, uh -huh. which is iconic in its own way. 
that's that's him that's him based i think he even says like he he based a lot of his acting on sean that's the sean coming through there unfortunately yeah he's just not that type of bond is he he's not that aggressive kind of gruff sort of person he's a little bit more or gentle george we'll call him why not oh yeah that's nice right yeah uh, and then basically she's like, no, I didn't send the guys and I'm also not a liar. Um, so then Bond says to get dressed, which I put like three question marks at the end because I was like, that doesn't... Is that how this goes in Bond films? Well, it didn't. So I don't quite... Yeah, it's... I don't know. Yeah, it's very odd. And then the man from before who was knocked out is now suddenly outside the, the door listening in. And then we get back to those guys, Tracy and Bond talking... And she says that she's here for a business transaction and they lie together. Eventually, he goes in for a kiss. She's like, no way, Jose. But then is also like, I always pay my debts and you just paid me a load of money to get me out of there. So I guess, sure, why not? And they do end up sleeping together. Yeah. And again, I, I like, I really like Tracy in this scene because she is just total sort of, um, you're getting a really good idea of, her emotional state of just complete apathy like she's you know just selling her body effectively by having bond covered her in the casino game um and you just get that that complete sort of ignorance and emptiness in her i think that's great i don't think it works on george well bond bouncing off of that but um as far as like the scene goes i think it was a good scene yeah from what i'm describing or what i just described there it doesn't sound great and i think that goes for a lot of their relationship in this film, where if you read the script, if you read this on paper, you would say, like, this is terrible. Like, can we can we do a rewrite here to make this make a little bit more sense? Can we have a little bit more dialogue? Can we have, like, a little bit more reason to it? But just, like, because Diana Rigg just sells it, like, it's fine. Like, it actually doesn't become that big of a deal. And yeah. there'll probably be some stuff later on we complain about with this film and their relationship. But, again, in all these scenes, she just sells it. So you just buy it. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it, it actually works because of her. Yeah. So, yeah, um, next morning... Bond wakes up, Tracy's gone, obviously. Uh, and I think he his gun, he looks in the drawer where he's stored his gun, which the gun's missing now. Um, but there is some money, so, which I thought was kind of strange, like some, some uh, casino chips um, of the amount that he bailed her out of. So I'm guessing the idea behind that is that, well, I don't really know why that is the case. Yeah, I don't know either. The only thing I can think of is that because that's Draco's men chasing yep. after Bond and she would know them, that they bailed her out. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But they don't say, so that's just a guess. But yeah, straight afterwards, Bond uh, is about to leave the hotel, checks out, is wearing a lovely orange turtleneck. I was going yeah. to ask you, because you said earlier about you like a lot of the things that he wears. Is this one of them? I, like I would say outfit? so, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I'm not prepared to rank Lazenby's uh, dress sense in this one and all the different suits, but there's there's not many I didn't like. Okay, fair enough. I thought it was quite, uh, I don't know, I was just getting a bit Velma vibes, that's all. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah oh. it's good. Yeah. <laughs> of course, sorry. Uh, so yeah, he's just about to, to leave the hotel and then he immediately gets sort of, uh, well, he gets kidnapped by this guy that's kind of got a gun pointed towards him or, and he's taken into a car, driven off, and again, constant jovial quips from Bond as he's being kidnapped, which don't work. 
at all. Because Bond's just there smiling away, trying to have that sort of coy Sean uh, element to him and doesn't work. But um, very quickly we cut to, or we get to where they're dropping him off, taking him out of the car. And this might be my favourite part of the film and I think you know why. Oh. Can, can you work it out? Is, is it the, the little man? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The little whistling midget. Oh, what a choice. What a, what an artistic choice for this film. Are, are, are you going to explain yourself? <laughs> no, <laughs> we're going to move straight on. No, uh, they walk through sort of like this old, well, this factory. Um, and as they walk through the, the henchmen and Bond, there's this little small person. I don't what Midget, I think midget is actually fine to say. I don't think they like dwarf. Um, well, it depends if they have dwarfism, right? Like dwarfism is a real thing. So if someone is actually got dwarfism, I think that's fine. I'm, I'm not. I'm not too sure. Okay. Well, it, it, it was yeah. Someone like that who's a janitor, clearly who's sweeping up, and that in itself is like okay, that's that's a interesting choice um, to like really focus on that because like the camera does linger on this this person sweeping, but they're, they're lingering on him because he's whistling Goldfinger, <laughs> so. It's whistling the Goldfinger tune. Why? So I have to hold my hands up here. I didn't notice he was whistling Goldfinger. Oh, I was just whistling like, Goldfinger. Yeah, I, I read about it afterwards, but during the film, I was just like, "What's the what? That's a that's a casting choice. I mean, that's awesome, but like they don't explain this. It, it's literally someone who's you know like three feet tall with a broom." brooming an abandoned factory <laughs> i think well it's mm. not really abandoned we find out but still and I, I think i was just too distracted by that i didn't put together it was goldfinger yeah strange choice another sort of wink at the audience type thing which uh, worked as you say i think you can get away with that in the pre-title sequence i think we're now into the film like you can't do that anymore that that did not work but it's your favorite part of the film it's my favorite part but it didn't work <laughs> yeah i think i didn't notice the majority of these references and i think i had a better time for it Mm. like i maybe there's other ones i did pick up on but the main one was the rifle at the start in the car but i couldn't really think of any other ones and i think again this film is better when you don't see all that stuff that connected to the other one and you can treat it as this unique standoff standalone bond film It, it just works a lot better in that context yeah, yeah, I would agree. So after going past the the person, the little person with the broom, uh, then Bond, there's an elevator, they open it up and Bond sees his time to attack. And we have another action scene, which is very similar to the other ones. Although this one has a lot of weird zoom-ins. And th- this is another editing trick that they seem to love in this film. You get a lot of those quick edits and just the impact edits, but also you just get all these zoom ins, these quick zoom into certain bits, and it's like, just that just doesn't work for me either. I think I prefer the quick edits to the zoom ins. <laughs> so we have Bond fighting oh. three people, and he beats them all up again. It's just all these zoom ins on all this stuff happening, and I, I just it just doesn't look good. They me. just keep throwing things and seeing what sticks, and none of it does. No, I, uh, but they do do the zoom-ins again, but it's... Yeah, I, again, I don't think it bothers me too much, but I don't think there's any fist fight in this film that work. 
Like you just have to kind of take it that as a big L for this film. It's like they tried and they're not the worst. Like there's been worse. I think Thunderball had some worse ones, but there's none of them really work in the same way that like from Russia with love and you only live twice did. Yeah. Uh, so after that bond then basically goes through the, no, is it actually an elevator or is it just a, it can't it's be just an a door. Oh, it's just a door. I thought it was an elevator. Yeah, I think it's just a door. Yeah, okay, I think you're right. Yeah, security door. He fights his way through, and I do like how this ends. So basically, because he was in a big fight, he he has a knife, and he switches over or goes through the door, and then he's crouching and holding this knife, um, but he's found himself in a very fancy, very nice-looking room with a what looks like a very well-off businessman. And I actually did like that pose, even though the fight wasn't too great. It was cool to see Bond holding a knife like this in that like combat kind of ready uh, pose. I think it was a, a smart way of transitioning uh, that across. Yeah, it's quite quite uh, uh, an iconic bit of the film, like that pose. I, I see that quite a lot. That shot um, kind of reminds me of one that we get later on in the film. But I'll try and remember to point it out. Yeah. So then he, the guy, the businessman is like, "I'm I'm Draco." Yeah, it's Draco, right? Not Draco. Yeah, because Draco makes me think of Draco Malfoy, and I definitely would have wrote that down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Draco. Yeah, I think I wrote Draco, but I think it's Draco. So this is going to be fun. We're going to switch between that the whole podcast. Oh, definitely. For sure. Uh, so, yeah, he introduced himself. He's the head of uh, a major European crime organization. Uh, I didn't quite get the name, but I don't think it's really important. He's just a very powerful man in, in the underworld, basically. Uh, and then Bond reacts by throwing his knife, but he doesn't throw it at the guy. He instead throws it at the calendar and hits, I think, the 14th of September, where Draco's all like, Mr. Bond, it's the 13th. And Bond says, I'm being, I, I'm superstitious, so I didn't want to throw it at the 13th. I didn't get uh, that it... line, but... Oh, okay, I thought you were going to say this is the one, this is like a quip that you did like. Uh, it's fine. I, I, I didn't really dislike, I don't dislike a ton of the quips, really, or, but a lot of them are just fine. I just don't, I just didn't get get it, really. I guess he doesn't like the number 13. Well, I think the the filmmaking purpose for that is because you're not going to know the date. Like, they're not going to... And they can't awkwardly show you what the date is. Like, they can't, like, show the knife landing there and then just quick, you know, zoom in on a, a calendar nearby and be like, ah, ah, there you go, they match. So I think instead they intentionally had Bond hit the wrong one so Draco would point out that it's the wrong one, but they needed to give Bond a, like a, a reason for hitting the wrong one. So this was like kind of their way of doing that. But then was there a big emphasis on, was there a time element to this film? Did no, to know not it was really. I mean, it's Christmas later. Hmm. Yeah, I I'm not sure about that. So maybe that does help actually because it's Christmas, right? Because like that means that this film took place from September to December and that does give some sort of time frame in terms of Bond and Tracy being together. Yeah, that's the only that's the only useful thing I could see getting out of that is because it, it does end up being a montage. So you need some sort of indication of actually how much time they spent together. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, after introducing himself, uh, Draco, yeah, Draco <laughs> and Bond then sit down. He's... Uh, Draco is the one that then says the line, get him a drink, shaken, not stirred. He doesn't have Bond say it, which I think was probably smart at this point. Like George even in the Sean Con- up. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that's mean. <laughs> uh, but even in the Sean Connery films, they kind of stopped him saying it. Like most of these Sean Connery ones, I can't think of all of them on the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's a line that other people say to Bond, not to Bond to other people at this stage. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and they basically sit down and, and have a have a talk. I don't have many details in terms of what they talk about because this scene was quite rambly to me. Yeah. Like there's this whole big monologue or this big speech or that Draco goes into about Tracy and her mother and him and stuff. And I just completely switched off. I was just like, I don't know what you're saying and I'm just going to have a little drinksy-poos and catch up <laughs> on my notes here. Like... It doesn't help that he has quite a thick accent as well. Like, I could understand him in the rest of the film, but when he's talking quite, like, slowly and uh, remorsefully, it's just like, I just can't really understand you, mate. That's fine. You're Tracy's dad. We got it. Makes sense to me. Cool. All right. I'll let you finish. I'll join you again (laughs) when you're done. You're going to get to your raspberry ripple ice cream. I didn't have ice cream. Oh, no. Um, Yes, it's a very big kind of exposition dump of information with this scene between Bond and Draco. I will say I, I kind of switched off again a little bit only because I, I kind of knew what was coming up, so I didn't need to pay attention. I've, I imagine if this was your first time watching it, you would have, you would be like, "What? What's going on? Who are you?" Sort of thing. But um, it, it's okay. I put, I just put, it sort of works the scene, but only because whoever dubbed Draco, because he was dubbed. Um, what? Yeah, I know. Amazing. Uh, had a very nice voice. <laughs> I liked his voice. It's a very smooth <laughs> voice. Very easy to listen to. But I agree, yeah. It was basically the the main point you want to get from this scene, which is really, yeah, as you say, just two people sitting next to a fireplace, is Draco is Tracy's dad. Tracy's not doing too well. She's emotionally unstable. She needs a man in her life. She needs Bond. Bond obviously doesn't really want to settle down with a woman. Uh, so he kind of uses this as a as a way, as a bargaining chip to get some information on Blofeld because Draco, given he is uh, in like a crime syndicate, probably has some information about Blofeld. So that's what really this all amounts to is Bond agrees, but only because he wants to get some info from, from Draco. Yeah, so Draco initially offers a million uh, pounds or, or euros or whatever it was. <laughs> Don't think the euro existed back then, but yeah, at like a million pounds to, to marry of which he says no and i thought it was quite interesting about this film is that this is the first time we really get a proper like plot going and i didn't dislike that approach but compared to say like you only live twice and fundable where they have this big plot that starts kind of straight away and you kind of get and even goldfinger as well you get this big kind of setup and there's a lot of time setting this stuff up so you get like okay bond's doing this and these are the stakes and things like that this film is like the opposite and uh i might be making this comparison to again later in the film as well as we get into it but this feels more like Doctor No in terms of a lot of his plot pacing, where it's a lot more kind of basic and stripped back. Because if we want to summarize what's happened so far, I don't know how far into the film we are, maybe like half an hour or something. Maybe that's a bit generous. But Bond found a woman on the beach who was suicidal and it's just kind of hung out and followed her around. And it turns out she's just part of a, a, a daughter of a very powerful man. And now Bond's like, okay, I can use this to get close to Spectre. But this is the first time we've heard about Spectre. This is the first time we've kind of heard about Blofeld and him wanting to know about Blofeld. And again, there's no there's no real stakes here or anything like that. It's a very more slower paced, lower key 
film, which considering the trajectory of what we were getting with Fundable and You Only Live Twice, it, it's, a, it's a very big change, very drastic kind of a approach to doing this. Yeah, and it's 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 sort of uh, ping-ponging in terms of if we look at You Only Live Twice, where we know what's happening. I think we discussed this in the previous podcast about how in that film we're seeing Bond... We know what's happening. We know the plot before Bond does, so we're seeing Bond learn. Back to this one, it's as more like Doctor Now, as you say, where we are with Bond every step of the way, finding out more about eventually like the clinic and all that sort of stuff. So, it, yeah, it's it's good that it's it keeps changing like that because I think if it was to stay on one way of telling a story like that it, for too long, it might get a little bit repetitive. Yeah, totally. And I think after Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, a back-to-basics Bond story that still carries on the story overall was probably the smart way to go, especially with a new Bond coming in. So I actually really like the pacing of this film, even though this is the longest film by far. This is an hour and 42 minutes. No, not sorry. 142 minutes long. Um, So this is the longest one by far, and I think the third longest Bond film overall. Um, and as some of it is be- and you know th- that happened because of this kind of pacing where things just move and doesn't have this big things and it doesn't go that quickly yeah and a lot of a lot of snow later on <laughs> yeah i think there's a couple of scenes with snow in uh, yeah yeah just a few yeah so yeah as i say that that scene ends with bond agreeing but only under the condition of of getting more spectre info and i don't really think much else happens really we just cut then straight to back to back to london Back to the money penny scene. Back to I'm sure you're very happy to see the hat throwing. Oh, it was, it was fantastic, right? Fantastic. Come on, scene. Give me the review of the hat throw. I, it was fantastic. So basically, he did what Sean kind of couldn't. He just walked into the room, instant throw of the hat. One nice smooth motion lands on perfectly. You know, there's a lot of things you can say about Sean Connery and George Lazenby, but George Lazenby can toss a hat, let me tell you. <laughs> and I was very impressed. Uh, I Like, he sold me at that moment. I was like, give him the contract, get him along. Because there was no cuts, there was no editing. It was just one walk in, throw the hat, done. Very impressed. I, he did have the contract for seven films, B. Well. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I put non- very nonchalant, you know, just, just does it, which I think helps. Definitely helps with the hat throw. Uh, but yeah, he walks in and has. We have the little Bond and Money Penny scene, uh, which to me was not really anything standout. I think, again, this is where I'm seeing Blo- uh, Laserby not being a great actor. But one thing I did like is that Money Penny has great hair. I loved her hair in this. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we're not really meant to be focusing too much on stuff like that, but great hair. No, you, you see what you want to see, Joe. That's totally, that's what we're here. Oh, you, you're going to regret that. <laughs> oh, no. Especially with the next film coming out. Oh, yes. Mm, well, I wish you the wish you the best with that one. Okay. So, yeah, I, it's weird how they just straight, like, they straight away try and have George Lazenby and, uh, I can't remember the actress's name, unfortunately, but Money Penny have that exact same relationship. Like, it's very much supposed to be exactly the same. They don't make any changes with this one. And mm. this probably would have been one where maybe tweaking a bit would have helped. Because I just didn't get any chemistry from from these two. And no. I'm not as negative about George Lazenby and his acting as you are. I'll be honest. I haven't fo- vocalized that because I'm too scared. Uh, but I'm not as down 
on his betrayal here but i will admit when he tries to one-to-one do the stuff sean did with the other actors just doesn't work and this didn't annoy me or anything but yeah george lazeby and uh or james bond being played by george lazeby does not have that chemistry at all with money penny well that's the thing is uh, when we were watching the connery films the acting wasn't standing out to me of these sort of scenes with money penny or whoever it may be but now that we're not we haven't got sean and we're getting someone else now it's it's really stood out or like the stark contrast in in acting capabilities and yeah i don't want to bash it wasn't terrible right i think that is it it's just i'm fresh out of seeing sean this is is quite a eye-opening but i mean it's it's not enough to completely wreck the film so i'm not i'm not going to be mean for much longer but yeah it's just uh that's that's the thing that really stood out Hmm. and a lot of this stuff stands out at the beginning right which is why we're talking about it like once things get going you you don't really think about it too much it's just like yeah that's james bond george lazeby that's fine it's just these are the opening moments where you kind of it stands out the most because it's like oh this is not sean connery this is someone else and they only did it once so it's, it's a lot more at the front of your mind early on yeah yeah uh, and this, the rest of the scene is quite quick. Is basically Bond goes in to see M, and M says we're taking you off the operation. Which do you remember the name of the operation? Yeah, I wrote it down because I don't recall hearing it before. Uh, I guess it's because it would have been a new operation after the last film, but Operation Bedlam. Bedlam. Yeah, Bedlam. Okay, so yeah, he's taking him off that, and I think Operation Bedlam was very specifically to find Blofeld and stop mm-hmm. Spectre, right? Like. And they don't specifically say this, but I take this as in, it's been two years since you only lived twice. So they were like, we know Blofeld got away, so he needs to be stopped. So, But he does say specifically, it's been two years that you've been on the operation. Yeah. Uh, which I really appreciated that little bit of uh, continuity, even if some of the continuity in this film doesn't make sense. I, I do appreciate that at the very least. Yeah, and then and, and you, you need that. Otherwise, you don't really... The, the reaction of Bond doesn't really make sense. So you need to know that this was this was his driving factor, uh, thinking like, like consuming his life sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's kind of it, right? So because M is very dismissive, he's just like, "Yep, nope, that's it. Off you go." Uh, so Bond leaves M's office and and straight away, straight away to Money Penny. Make a note, take a note, Money Penny, and he basically quits quits uh mi6 quits being a a spy and is done with it it goes off to his office and starts packing up straight away (laughs) like ludicrously fast i the thing that stood out to me was like he had an office like yeah we've never seen his office before and then he's just in there packing get a big cardboard box putting his plant in there his mug his favorite pencil and i'm just like what what room is this (laughs) it's not a very nice office really no it's really dingy thought it'd be nicer but um this is another this is a another uh part of the film which is very on the nose with the previous re- like references to past bond films where he's taken out all of the gadgets and things that he's used you know takes out the uh i think it's honey rider's knife sort of thing that she was wearing on the beach and and as all this is happening on screen you're getting a little bit of the cues from the themes of those those films that so you get a little bit of underneath the mango tree and then he pulls out uh, the wristwatch from from rush of love with the the uh wire on it i can't remember what they're called um and then the rebreather 
from Thunderball. And it's just, oh, bad. <laughs> I hate this bit. I hate this bit, like this little slideshow. And hey, do you remember these gadgets, everyone? Here's the music as well, in case you forgot. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I didn't really connect that too much. Like, I wasn't seeing this as him going through all his old films and stuff. I don't know really? what I was doing. I don't know. Okay. What... I was just yeah. looking elsewhere, but I, I didn't really, I mean, I think I noticed they were from previous films, but I didn't really connect that or think about it too much. It was just him with his stuff. It was, ah, there's a load of gadgets. Cool. Yeah. I think, I think having the gadgets is fine. I just think the music was just too much. It's like, just give the audience some credit that they can recall. Like if they're seeing this film, they're probably a fan of Bond films. So like they would hopefully remember some things and it's like, no, we need to have the music really awkwardly fade from one into the other to to accompany this and i just didn't didn't like it do you think if this was still sean connery you would have liked it better oh and and sean was quitting and and was having all the the gadgets yeah shown well no i I don't think i would have i think it's purely the actual editing of it and having the music i really don't like okay fair enough I, i can agree with that but again i don't recall this the music cues but are you sure you didn't have any ice cream Oh, I might have done. Maybe, maybe it was so much ice cream I've just blacked out. <laughs> Don't remember it. Uh, but something I do remember is very shortly afterwards is that Bond, after packing his office up, is he gets a little whiskey flask out. He unscrews it. He has a little sip. And we get a shot of him sitting in his chair being f- reflected on a picture of the Queen. Mm-hmm. And he says, sorry, mum, has a sip. Uh, and, and toasts off the queen because part of his resignation is that he specifically says i'm resigning from her majesty's secret service yeah and i i don't know how i feel about this one it, i always kind of do like the ties to bond and actual british culture and society and there was that whole thing with daniel craig and the queen and i think thought that was really cool uh so this one i i thought was actually quite nice even if it's maybe a little bit too much i don't know i'm quite quite conflicted about this yeah i didn't i didn't mind that to be honest i don't i remember seeing it quite a lot on twitter and that when the queen actually when the queen died last year all the all the bond twitter's uh, accounts i follow were all it was all that same image oh i didn't see that i, I thought it was more the daniel the daniel craig stuff is what i uh, mostly saw oh yeah that yeah that too would have made sense uh, so then after that, Bond is then called back to M. M says, I accept your request because Moneypenny submitted the request for Bond to resign. But he doesn't say anything else, which seems a bit cold. But then we find out that Moneypenny has changed it. So it's two weeks of leave while, rather than actually resigning. Good old Moneypenny, eh? Yeah. And then Bond just kisses her on the lips as a little thank you. So I was like... <laughs> it's like... Again, if that was Sean Connery, where they'd known each other for like five different films, fine. But seeing George Lazenby kiss Money Penny on the lips, I'm just like, do you, do you know her that well, bro? <laughs> Is this Sorry, I, I was just still paying attention to her hair. I <laughs> <laughs> she really popped. She really did. Now, a question about this this scene. So, yeah, uh, Bond gives her a smooch, off he goes. And then just before the scene ends, you get this tiny little bit with M over the intercom saying, uh, I can't remember what it says now, but like a, a little line to, to Money Penny. It was like, what would I do without you, Money Penny? Which I think Bond also says to her. Oh, because he's listening in. Right, that makes sense. But so she didn't actually swap the 
M, M knew that he actually wanted to leave, right? Yeah, I I take it, and again, they don't tell you, but that money penny spoke to M about it, and then between the two, they decided, okay, let's just change it to two weeks, mm. and what maybe money penny suggested that to M instead, and M agreed, which is why M says, you know, what would I do without you, money penny? I I take it as that it's not just a pure money penny change it sends it to M. It's they have a conversation, make that decision together, and then they're both in on it when Bond gets the two weeks instead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I feel like they could have maybe done a bit more of that. With basically with, with M with M knowing that this was something Bond was willing to resign over. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking that, but I just feel like there could have been something there. Yeah, I think it was solid enough, uh, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in this film, so Yeah. Uh, they that's kind true. Of, yeah, we kinda of get that air money penny scene. It plays out quite well. I, I do quite like it, then we kind of move on to the actual mission itself but even then there's no stakes here it's just bond gets two weeks off because to go and marry tracy to then find blofeld it's we don't get that same mission briefing as we normally did yeah so bond off on his two weeks leave he goes to i have no clue where he goes to (laughs) i I agree i was so confused they normally really set up the country that Bond goes to, welcome to Jamaica Bond, or you're going to Turkey and Istanbul and, and things like that. But I guess Spain, because it's the bull fighting yeah. stuff. Yeah, so he goes to visit a, a bull ring, bull fighting ring, um, where Draco is uh, and, and Tracy too. And yeah, you're right, actually, yeah. I, I, I would have thought, doesn't matter. You know what, doesn't matter. It's film's so too I have looked this up. It's Portugal, apparently. Portugal? Oh, okay. Which makes hmm. sense. Again, it's it's right there yeah. next to Spain. But I, I guess Spain, because they just don't say. So, yeah, he, he ends up here talking to Draco um, a little bit more about their deal with um, him courting Tracy and uh, getting some info on Blofeld. Now, i got to say, like, this whole scene, I really can't remember too much from it apart from that. Like, they're all sitting down at a table. Uh, Tracy, because of... I assume it's Draco's mistress or whoever that other lady was. Um, the one just... who can't act. I know the one. <laughs> she she talks to Tracy and basically, I think, blabs about her dad's plan to find her a man. So she brings it up at the table where they're all together and gets angry and and want kind of just like wants this all over and done with and says to Draco, you know, just just tell Bond what you know. Like, get, I don't want to do that. Just get this deal over and done with. So um, he does. Uh, he tell he tells Bond about this uh, lawyer. I wrote down his name because otherwise I would have forgot. It's called Gumbold. Gumbold. Great name. Uh, in Bern. So that's kind of all, all that he knows is a connection to uh, Spectre and Blofeld. And Tracy's wandered off. Um, but yeah, like this whole the whole scene with the, with them together. That there's a bit of there's a bit of dialogue, but I could not tell you if there's anything interesting in that apart from just more plot stuff. I I don't know either. So it, yeah, again, it's a very well, I would say it's a simple scene, but it's not really. But the thing that I don't quite get, and it's something that this film doesn't really kind of bother with, it's the thing that I had about Goldfinger in Switzerland, where like they go to Switzerland and sure, they're there, where Bond films up to this point has always been about kind of showing off the culture and Bond kind of being there and somewhat experiencing that. And that's always been something I've always liked about the films. And this one feels like it's trying to do that with the bullfighting, but it feels so secondary and then again, they're just in Portugal. Not that you would know that. 
and they don't spend much time in there and they're saying the lawyers in switzerland so then they bugger off to switzerland so i think this might be the first film in the series where we get the whole whirlwind tour across the countries where there's just no real impact between them like goldfinger did that a little bit but even then it was still like okay america and switzerland like there were still two very distinct places and you did get somewhat of a sense even if it was a bit di- uh, diluted with switzerland but this is the first one where like yeah he's like by that beach and in that hotel with tracy wherever that is and then his boom is in london and then boom is in portugal again not that you would know and then boom is in switzerland and i think this is the f- the film that establishes that type of trope uh, for the franchise yeah but it's weird because then it's it does all that and then it's like boom we're in the alps and we stay there for so, so long <laughs> yeah. like so it takes long. a while to get there but once we're there we're staying yeah yeah because that, that is the one thing I, I do like that we get onto later on is like the location of you know, the snow and the mountains. So that I like, but you're right. This first bit of the film, it's just all over the place. Yeah, um, like if this was from Russia with Love, this scene would have been more focused on with the bullfighting and stuff. And Not that I'm okay with bullfighting, but it, it would have showed it off as a little bit more. And then we would have spent more time in Portugal and seeing other parts of the country. But no, this is just a random country showing off a very small part of its culture and then buggering off. and We never come back here. And it's a, yeah, it's, it's just odd. And again, it introduces that trope that we see in a lot of later Bond films. It kind of opens the door for them to have Bond somewhere randomly in the world just because it's Bond and he travels the world. Yeah. Uh, there is one thing. So at the end of this scene where uh, Tracy storms off, Bond goes and, and finds her and she's crying and he sort of consoles her. And, and that, this is where we get the beginning of their relationship actually growing. Um partly because I guess Bond is trying to maybe still fulfill his part of the deal, uh, but also because he generally, uh, genuinely does actually start to develop feelings for her because she is this, um, I think because of the nature of what we've said before, this character that doesn't really have any inhibitions and she's quite self-motivated self, uh, and all that sort of thing. So he sees that as a bit different than all the other Bond girls in the past sort of thing. Um, and then this is where we get uh, the the montage of them of them dating and all the lovely things they do. So I guess this would have been sort of like this should be where you you see more of the country and and all that sort of stuff, and the culture. But it's it's condensed into a, a very short montage of them uh, bonding and oh bonding, but yeah, um, getting to know each other and where we get the song. We get uh, we have all the time in the world. So finally gets played. Yeah, it's a. Uh... I mean, it's weird seeing this type of montage in a Bond film. Let's just get that out of the way. Like, this is not something you would normally see, which does help it in a way, and because it, it does make it feel a little bit more distinct. But I never got the impression that Bond was actually properly falling for her throughout or any of this, really, uh, because it is just those two hanging out. And then there's a line that happens after the fact, after the montage, where she says, I'm in love with him, which you're supposed to kind of have happen with the montage, but also because of the, the night they spent together in the hotel, because the reason why Tracy runs off and Bond follows and she's crying is because I think she's upset that she did genuinely like Bond and wanted to be with Bond and was upset that Bond had taken a deal with her dad to to marry her, basically. I think that's what that was supposed to be. Uh, but then they do end up spending time together. But... Yeah, again, she comments that, like, I don't think Bond's in love with me, but I'm in love. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in love with uh, with Bond. So 
I was a little bit confused by it, but you know, it's fine. You know, you know what this is about is a montage. They go to the city and do a bit of shopping. They ride horses. They go to like this rich, like this garden and very fancy looking garden and things like that. And uh, this might be part of the reason why Bond is so well dressed in this film to try and match up with Tracy because Tracy is very wealthy and likes all these, the fancier things going by this montage. So having George Lazenby Bond be someone who kind of visually fits in with that type of lifestyle, it just kind of helps sell it a little bit more that these two are actually quite a match because they do are, they're both quite wealthy and both like those, uh, those finer things. I mean, she's a countess, you know, it's yeah. got to, it's got to meet her level. And then also there's a load of bears in a concrete pit, which made me sad, but okay. Oh, don't remind me of that. They look like baby bears as well. I don't know if that was the angle, but like a load of bear cubs in a Sioux pit. It's like, oh, didn't you Was that in that. London, that bit? Uh, it might be. It jumps that around Zoo? a lot. I don't yeah. know. I just felt like that bit. Oh, or no, maybe that bit was in. Oh, who knows? That oh, might be in Switzerland because it, it, yeah, be it transitions Switzerland, to yeah. Switzerland, right? That would make more sense. But you don't really get a sense of what Bond is thinking about all this as well. I think that's one thing is that you know what Tracy is thinking. You know what she is about. She reacts to things and she talks about it. Bond never talks about Tracy in this part of the film, apart from to like, yeah, he just doesn't talk about her. So it might have been nice to have some sort of lying to hint at him and his feelings. But you only see this from one side and Bond just feels a little bit of a blank slate at this point. I think, yeah, yeah. in the grand scheme of the film, what later happens when we see the other women in this film and what Bond ends up doing, maybe that makes more sense that at this part of the film, he's still kind of just in it for the info and doesn't really care. But then having seen Ruby, whoever it is we see later on, and that maybe that's what makes him realize, that, oh, actually, you know, Tracy's not so bad. I don't know because <laughs> they're very, Tracy's they're very not different. So bad. They're very different uh, women. Let's just say that. Yeah, I, again, it's, it's it's a little bit clumsy. I guess you could argue both ways, right? Does Bond fall in love with Tracy here, or is it later in the film? I took it as later in the film, and this was still just Bond being Bond, just seducing a, a woman. Maybe there's some interest there, but I don't think they put enough evidence down for me to kind of buy it so early on but i do buy it later on kind of uh but i think it's supposed to be once they meet up again later that's when i think that kind of they reconnect and then that's when bond kind of goes all in right but again you could see it both ways like you could totally argue the whole point in this montage is for bond to be falling in love as well you know you could argue with that certainly yeah i'm trying to remember now in uh, with the book which is obviously going to have more more chance to set that set up this relationship uh at what kind of stage you get those those thoughts of bond and i think it i think it is earlier on because you do get more of uh the beginning film with with her trying to kill herself so yeah i guess it's one of those things i get we've said this a couple of times but you just you, you lose a certain element when you are translating books into film and this one in particular which is probably the most faithful to the book uh so some things are, of course, going to be stripped back. Yeah, and I think the the faithfulness of the book explains the pacing that I was talking about earlier, where it doesn't feel the need to kind of go big and set up all the stakes. I, I This feels very, again, similar to Doctor No, almost like it feels paced like the book, where it's just Bond is in this situation and that slowly develops over time. 
yeah. rather than it quickly develops to set up the film so you understand what's going on and then that kind of pays off as you go it's it, it doesn't quite have that same same feel yeah so then eventually yeah this montage leads to switzerland where bond and, and tracy hang out all over each other where you get a funny scene where they're in a car and the dad or draco's in the middle uh or draco's in the middle sorry <laughs> and bond and tracy are like crushing him in the car it's quite quite funny but basically they drop bond off at the the lawyer's office they're just like now we're in switzerland and the lawyer is in there um and something i noticed here and it's in the rest of the film as well we don't get a ton of like those wide shots establishing stuff we do once we're fully in the alps but it's something that i really really liked about you only live twice and it's kind of disappointing that i don't think we kind of get them in the same way here and i would have really appreciated it even just going to the lawyer's office if we got those big nice wide gorgeous looking shots kind of showing off the city and the location and i think that like portugal could have done with it as well just give me some nice amazing looking shots really showing off where we are um yeah yeah especially as you say they've done it before now like they did it really well in the previous film so why why have they dropped that it's a shame yeah they just take it all out and it, you lose your sense of place a little bit like there's establishing shots they're just not as good or as eye-catching as as the last few films no. so yeah bond then breaks into the lawyer's office he has a little look around the office trying to find some info he then steps onto the balcony where we see this blonde construction guy down below and then a crane comes over and i, I, I don't know what you would call the thing that the crane has attached to it but he they basically drop off this big uh briefcase for bond which he takes it out and it turns out it's a safe cracker which was quite interesting to see because the last film had a way of yeah. bond cracking a safe and it was tiny that he could carry on him <laughs> and now this time they need a construction crane to to lift this massive like crap buster like it's it's odd well it wasn't just a safe cracker it was a photocopier too oh yeah that's true i'll give but, you like, that one I'm sure I'm sure Q would have had a gadget. Well, actually, I suppose he wouldn't be able to go to Q right now, but like they must have had cameras that they could have used. But yeah, so it does it. Yeah, it is very bulky. Yeah, but you would think a photocopy or a paper copier, like a lawyer's office probably would have one. Like, mm. don't need to bring your own. True. But I'm not an international super spy. I don't know. Uh, and then basically, Bond sets this uh, safe cracker up, and it takes a while. And we get this, <laughs> I like this moment where Bond sits there and is just visibly bored. Like he puts his fit, like hand in his fist, like, hum. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like... how I was feeling at this point, watching the film as well. <laughs> like a reflection. Uh, but eventually being bored, he finds a playboy. So he gets to read his little playboy. And it's... Uh, I mean, it's a little bit creeping nowadays, but it still made me laugh where it's just like he turns it to its side. And I think the idea is that the Playboy always had that big double feature in the middle of the magazine where yeah, it'd be like a fold full out, spread yeah. of the, over the two pages. So the point there, I think, is up turning it on its side is seeing that. And he just looks at that and smiles. And is like, oh, all right, Bond. Yeah, I thought like, oh, yeah, all right, fair enough. Yeah, Bond's in, Bond's in this little office by himself. He keeps the Playboy and keeps on looking at it outside. <laughs> yeah, when he leaves, he's just yeah. like reading a Playboy. <laughs> it's just like straight out in the open. Again, on the to the side with the fold out middle, like in full view. Come on, Bond. 
Yeah, it's not the coolest he's been. No, definitely not. And also in between this is where we get that scene of Tracy talking to to Draco saying, I'm in live with Bond and hopefully Bond can love me someday. Which again is another reason why I think maybe Bond isn't quite there uh, yet. But that's just a little thing we get while this whole office scene is playing out. Well, I totally missed that. Did you? I was too too busy thinking about the Playboy, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it must have been. Uh, but like the interesting thing about this scene is that it's a it's a very classic Bond spy scene. You know, he goes into a place and he's looking for documents and he breaks into a safe and scans the document. But I didn't really feel any stakes with this one at all. No. Like they normally put a little bit more effort in making this feel a bit more tense. Like, oh no, there's a gun poking out by the window or we know there's somebody nearby and there's a little bit of that of the lawyer coming back to the office, but really, Bond just goes in, scans some docs, and just leaves, reading a Playboy. Like, it's weird that this didn't quite have that same... It, you know, these scenes usually aren't super tense, but it seems like they didn't put in the effort to make these feel really tense at all. Yeah, they've done tense scenes like this before well, and they had the tense music, but nothing to go with it. So you're right, I was expecting... The lawyer was meant to be away for an hour, which would give Bond that window of time. So I was expecting, as it was getting closer to the on the hour, because he set up a little uh, alarm, is that you'd you'd end up with a bit more something goes wrong, or um, I don't know, he can't. the The lawyer comes back early, and we're getting like scenes of the lawyer like almost at the door, sort of thing, like about to open, so he just to jump out or whatever. But no. No, Bond just does it and and leaves. And it's close, like he passes by the lawyer as as he exits his office and goes down to the lift. But it's like, oh, I was I thought there'd be a bit more to that, but no, he just does it and and leaves. Yeah, it's just weird because I think that's supposed to be in there. Like the lawyer does come back early. It just never even gets close. Like and mm. Bond just easily leaves. So it's just weird. It's again, it's nothing really to do with John uh, George Lazenby or anything like that. It just seems like. Yeah, why did why did you get this wrong when you got it right in so many other films? Yeah, so he grabs a few bits of paper from the safe concerning Blofeld uh, and photocopies them, and then we get uh, a scene at M's house, which I, when the scene started and you see this big, like, grand, stately home and getting driven there and it's all looking very fancy, I was like, what is what was this bit again? I'd completely forgot, and then you find out, oh, it's actually. Bond visiting M at home, which to me, I if I think of that, I usually think of uh, Daniel Craig and and Judy Dench, and when he breaks into her her house. But I completely forgot that. I mean, he didn't break in, obviously, but I forgot that you had this M M at home scene where you find out he's a, a massive um, butterfly collector. There's probably a term butterfile. For that. I think they call it Butter, Is it really butterfile? No, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's people who like butter. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, the butter people trademarked butterfile. Butterfly file doesn't work quite so well. Lurpack all the way, thank you very much. Um but yeah, he goes and visits them at home just to show off what he found from the lawyer's office. Uh sort of again there's this there's this it's it's an attempt to do the Sean Bond, but with George Lazenby, where he's commenting on uh one of the butterflies and oh that's a large uh a large version of this species of butterfly and it's meant to be like oh <laughs> bond knows about butterflies that's that's funny and he's sort of upstaging m but no it just doesn't work for me uh a little thing but anyway uh 
Yeah, the, it's, uh, it's cool to see M's home and stuff, but like, yeah, this should have just been cut from the film. Like with yeah. Alshon Connery here, it doesn't really work, and it just seemed like a bit of a missed opportunity. And it, again, it does, like you say, the Daniel Craig M scene works really well with their relationship. This is just like Bernard Lee maybe just legitimately messing around with butterflies and just draws ladies like what's up (laughs) so here's a letter and then they just move on like probably should have been cut yeah because that is really it he just shows them a letter and says hey uh i found well it's a very very big another another big bit of spiel like uh exposition set up where bond starts to explain i'm gonna leave you to explain this oh no (laughs) so i don't want to get involved no yeah so i think (laughs) here we go here Basically, so we know that the lawyer represents Blofeld, who is using a, a pseudonym, like using a fake name. And the person who, or Blofeld using that fake name, has written to the London College of Arms, asking to be recognised formally as a count. So he can, I, I don't know why, I'll be honest with you. But basically, he wants to get somebody from the college over to his facility in order to verify his lineage and give him that title officially so bond says i'm going to go to the college and ask them if i can as matter of national interest pose as that person from the college of arms and go instead of the person they were going to send you did a very that is bravo for that that was a very good explanation because in the that's better than bond said in the film oh what was he on about (laughs) it's so long and i swear it was it was like one take oh that'll do it was like one continuous bit of dialogue so long and i was barely following it so you know you did a good job there i picked most of this up after the fact like as you say no it's fading to a college and i'm just like I, what college is that what college of arms i've never heard of the college of arms like mm. that needed more explanation in itself but yeah again i put that all together once the film all came together because you get that more it makes more sense once this all plays out but yeah this was very much that classic bond moment of just don't worry about it it's fine bond needs to go somewhere there's a bad guy it's fine yeah that's exactly it so then as part of that transition, we have Bond going to the, the College of Arms in London, where he's talking to one of the, I believe he's a professor, and we get a really cute moment here, and again, it's only cute in retrospect, where he is the, the guy who's in charge of these arms and the, these coat of arms is showing Bond. Is it his coat of arms? Bond's coat of arms? Or yeah. is it someone else's? Yeah, yes, it's his, his uh, heraldry, whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, so this is the one for James Bond, and we have the bit in Latin. It's in Latin, right, I want to say. Yeah. And he says, hey, good motto, eh? The world is not enough. Oh. Um, yeah, again, it's like, it's a throwaway line in this film, and it is quite a nice line and quite a nice title, Bond. But yeah, this is this is where that came from. It Honestly, wasn't just gr- the Christmas Jones or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Yeah, a great a great idea for them to use that as a film title. It's yeah, not a, not a Fleming book name. So, yeah, and I, I think you're right. Like if people people were seeing this in 1969, we'd be like, okay, whatever, that's kind of cool. But in retrospect, oh, there it is. Yeah, it's weird when like Blofeld later says, "Aha, I will take over the quantum of solace." I'm like, that's a bit out of context. <laughs> that's cool, but okay. Hope that's that doesn't come a, back. It was a weird American Blofeld, that's why. Yeah, <laughs> Quantum of Solace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so very briefly with the scene, we have a very kind of overly enthusiastic professor guy who's like, oh, yes, that's all fine for, for queen and country. Very good. Very good. <laughs> wow, it's like he's right here. That's a very good impression. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I basically agrees. And he says, this is all quite shady. Uh, you're, I need to send them a description of what I look like, and then you'll be collected. And then he warns Bond, watch out for the man without earlobes. That's how you know that's, that's the guy. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode six of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond heads to the Alps, investigates the angels of death before uncovering Blofeld's latest evil scheme to make himself very rich. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you for part two.